night when you said they're here? Can't take my goldfish to school. You know, maybe the fault line runs just directly under our house. Only wouldn't that be a scream? The children got crimes all over my bed. Sweetie, remember last yeah. night? Do you remember when you woke up and you said they were here? Uh huh. Well, who did you mean? Who's here? The TV people. Spirit arithmetic. One nick. Two nickels, three licorice twists before bedtime, four hours of a leaky faucet, five times, five times now, six spoons I swallow, seven scratches upon the sun, eight elms invisible to the eye, nine knots in a blonde braid, ten attics in this house, in this one we store strangers. I'm Adam Davis. I am a poet, a photographer, and a teacher, and my debut collection of poems, Index of Haunted Houses, was published last year by Saraband Books. And my name is Colin Waters. I'm a writer, editor, and I'm here today with you to talk about a film Adam and I are both very interested in for reasons that will become soon apparent, Poltergeist. Poltergeist, the 1982 haunted house Box office hit directed by Toe Pooper and maybe Steven Spielberg too. I should add that we're delighted that our end of show guest is Joy Priest, whose latest collection, Horsepower, is published by the University of Pittsburgh Press as part of their Pitt Poetry season. Joy will discuss the effect films have had on her poetry with particular reference to the 2009 film Mississippi Damned. We're going to do a deep dive on Poltergeist, but before we get to that, when it comes to considering connections between poetry and possessed properties, the Poetry Goes to the Movies podcast has an advantage in that my co-host has recently published a collection called, as you heard, Index of Haunted Houses, from which you heard the poem at the start of the show. Adam, what inspired you to write this collection? And did um, filmic influences play any part? That's a great question. Um, as a visual thinker, film is always lurking in the background of my ideas, though in the case of Index of Haunted Houses... What inspired the poem's supernatural concerns was the economic reality of haunted houses that arrived in the wake of the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. You know, all those new tract homes that went suddenly abandoned as the financial bottom of the United States fell out. I was fascinated in particular by the use of otherworldly or supernatural language to explain a catastrophe that was by all accounts man-made. You know, part of this is deflecting blame from the banks, zombies that they are and were called, but also this national linguistic tick is symptomatic of the ways in which we deal with the uncomfortable realities uh, through discomforting stories, namely ghost stories, which I would argue are the backbone of America's mythology since they function as fables complete with social conditioning and morals broadcast by the status quo. Uh, I'm, I'm sure listeners out there are familiar with some classics. You've got The Babysitter, which for me or my interpretation would be it's truly a parable about parental fear wrapped up in a distrust of technology. That one, as you recall, has the uh, babysitter taking care of some kids and there's a man who keeps calling and it's revealed that the man is calling from upstairs. Uh, you know, so you have the, the idea of the telephone being this uh, instrument of, uh, of invasion. Uh, and then you have the hook, um, which is that classic story of two teenagers going to a makeout point and uh, they hear on the radio that a hook-wielding psychopath is broken out of the state prison, and so they race home only to find the hook stuck in the door. And that, that story itself, works as a way to scare teenagers off of sex without ever having to explain sex to them. Kind of a classical puritanical checkmate that we like to use uh, instead of sex ed. But in line with this coping mechanism, or narrative coping mechanism, 
I should mention that many of the films released during the recession were about haunted houses. Much like the glut of torture porn cinema that responded to the use of torture in the Iraq war, these supernaturally focused films were a social x-ray of American psyches, you know, because after all, what's a bigger ghost than a bank? The idea of economic language being intertwined with supernatural language is centuries old. I mean, Marx spoke about uh, there's a specter haunting Europe, the specter of communism. So it's been in people's minds. And I guess that's because haunted houses are a wonderfully elastic metaphor. You can use it for so many things. There's America as a haunted house because it's built over the bones of its indigenous people. (laughs) Keep that thought in mind. We'll be returning to that in a moment. There's poetry. As a haunted house, you know, an Italian stands as, as uh, means rooms and poems are haunted or possessed by their influences. And if you want to go for broke and try a third one, um, there's cinema as a haunted house. Film is haunted by spectral beings made of light or to put it another way, most films are records of people who are already dead. The actors, that is. Tragically, in Poltergeist, two of the younger members of the cast died way too soon and in very sad circumstances. Um, there's Dominique Dunn, uh, who plays the oldest daughter in the film. She was murdered. And Heather O'Rourke, the uh, actor who plays the, the young girl, the youngest girl, the one who gets sucked into the TV, she died from a condition called stenosis. Um, she thinks she was 13 when she died. So, yeah, and when you watch Poltergeist, you know, if you have any sort of sense of what went on beyond the film itself, that's a slightly uncanny feeling too. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think one of the things that I'd heard about before I even saw Poltergeist was this notion of the the Poltergeist curse, right? And I think a big part of the film's legacy is the its behind-the-scenes horror. That idea of the film being cursed almost, uh, you know, whether that was true or not, it, it kind of uh, helped to bring more viewers in, you know? And this made me wonder too, if there are any equivalents in poetry, you know, uh, poems so fraught or haunted that they can't be repeated. It reminds me of uh, this line from one of my favorite writers, Julio Cortazar. He has a, uh, uh, I guess, a prose poem, you might call it, uh, called Instructions on, or rather examples of how to be afraid in his excellent book, Cronopios y Famas. And uh, I'll just read the, the quote here. In a small town in Scotland, they sell books with one blank page hidden someplace in the volume. If the reader opens to that page and it's three o'clock in the afternoon, he dies. So... <laughs> It's, very, it's all true. Blunt. I never read it three o'clock in the afternoon, just in case. <laughs> Has that been banned in, across Scotland? No one can read it three o'clock. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll talk to the relevant authorities. That's it. But all the bookshops of Scotland shut at that hour. It's. Uh, I, I would love that actually. Um, well, not for the shutting of books, but the, the idea of it. But you know, in film at convention. This reminded me of The Ring uh, with its cursed videotape or The Evil Dead with its cursed book, The Necronomicon. Um, it made me think of ghost stories as well, like Bloody Mary, where you uh, stand before a bathroom mirror and recite this name three times. And then supposedly Mary herself will appear and break the glass and pull you through it. You know, but in, in poetry, although there are many spooky poems, uh, Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market comes to mind or anything Edgar Allan Poe ever wrote. Uh, I can't say that I'm aware of any poems that are specifically cursed, although you could argue that Dante certainly used his Inferno to curse no small number of his personal enemies. That said, thanks to my rudimentary research skills, I did discover that there is a poem by a Japanese poet, Saijo Yaso, entitled Tomino's Hell, that will doom you to all kinds of terrible ends if read aloud in Japanese. So for the sake of time and the lack of danger to our presumably English-speaking audience, 
I won't read it, but it did get me thinking about the power we privilege language with, particularly poetic language, which like spells or incantations is full of occasion and inflection and portent. Mm. I can only think of cursed individuals. I know that Ted Hughes, for example, was spoken of as mm -hmm. a cursed individual because of the death of Sylvia Plath and death of a, right. a partner after that. But you, you, you might, if you took an opposite point of view, think that the people who were cursed were the the women who got involved with them so it's just perspective isn't it as for poems themselves yeah. i mean i think there is something uncanny about poems you know they're almost spells aren't they they're they're incantations when we talk about poetry and we talk about horror films i think there's a bit more of a connection than people would would give credit for i agree yeah i think there, there anytime you give place or a platform um you know for the spoken word like we do with poetry there, there's a kind of sacred nature to it that could lead to a a perceived conjuring, perhaps, you know, who knows what, uh, what might be called up by the, the combination of right words. So as we said earlier, Poltergeist is a horror film and it came out in 1982 when it was the eighth highest grossing film of that year. Do you know what the top most grossing film of that year was? In 82? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, yes, E.T. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Gold star for Adam. Uh, I'm two for two on the uh, Poetry Goes to the Movies uh, quiz. Do you, you want to go for Broke and say what the second highest grossing film that year was? Oh, man. Uh, Terms of Endearment? No, I thought you were going to get there. It, it does begin with a T. It's Tootsie. Tootsie. <laughs> I uh, I was nowhere near. <laughs> All right, two for three. It's a it's a very strange top ten, you know. Rocky Three's in there, but also on Golden Pond, and uh, much to my surprise, in the top ten as well as the best little whorehouse in Texas. Very different days from now. The interesting thing about Poltergeist for a horror film, it managed to garner um, three Oscar nominations, which I don't know about you, Adam. That sticks in my craw a little bit. When you consider Zodiac, the last film we looked at, didn't didn't get any Oscar nominations. <laughs> It was directed by Tobe Hooper, uh, who's best known for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Although I have to say his vampire film, you know, based on the Stephen King book, Salem's Lot. I love that. That's one of my absolute favorite horror films of all time. And it, it's possibly uh, the more relevant film Hooper's to mention in connection with Poltergeist, seen as they're both about small towns uh, afflicted by a horror from within. The script for Poltergeist was written by Michael Grays, Mark Victor and Steven Spielberg, uh, with Spielberg also producing. Indeed, the film has Spielberg's fingerprints all over it. And you can see that in the setting, the small town, white picket fences, the focus on a family, especially its younger members. It's imbued with that Spielbergian sense of wonder. So that even when the ghosts manifest, the witnesses, the people in the house, they don't carry fear, but display I guess a sense of awe, the same kind of sense of awe that the characters in Close Encounters do at the end when the flying saucers turn up. I must say that is one of the striking things about this. For a horror film, people aren't terribly scared by what they <laughs> what they find coming at them. There's been arguments down the year about who really directed Poltergeist, which lends itself very nicely to the themes of possession and influence uh, that we're going to be chatting about as the podcast progresses. Spielberg had originally wanted to direct Poltergeist. It seems to have been largely his his baby, his um, his idea, but he was contractually forbidden to direct another film while making E.T. And it makes you wonder why he couldn't wait just another year. So, Adam, if our dear listeners haven't seen Poltergeist yet, 
how would you describe the plot of the film? For those of you unfamiliar with the film, Poltergeist tells the tale of the Freeling family who live in the idyllic planned community of Cuesta Verde, California. Uh, and their idyllic existence, however, is upended when a poltergeist makes its presence known in their house. At first, humorously, you know, by moving chairs around and stacking uh, them on top of each other, uh, uh, almost like a, a kind of supernatural performance artist. Uh, but then terrifyingly, when the son is attacked by a tree and the youngest daughter sucked via her bedroom closet into an interdimensional portal, at that point, it's up to their yuppie parents to prove their worth as parents by rescuing the aforementioned children. Now, the film contains some genuine thrills and uh, somehow only earned a PG rating, despite the fact that in one scene, a man tears off the flesh from his maggot-infested face until you see his skull underneath. I cannot express to you how terrifying and how, how horrifying this scene is, even uh, you know, in, in the present day. I'll reveal to you when I saw this film in a second, and <laughs> you, you can see that it's not really suitable material for a young person to be exactly. To yeah, be that's it. and you know to that point, it would be two more years, uh, 1984, until the one-two punch of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins, both you guessed it, involving Spielberg, would convince the MPAA to create the PG-13 rating, meaning that kids would be spared visions of hearts being torn from human chests and monsters pureed in blenders until their teenage years. All this said, you know, one of the things I was thinking about in this movie, Colin, I've got a question for you. Given that the ghosts in the film only show up once the Freelings break ground on their swimming pool, who's really to blame for the haunting that occurs in the film? It seemed that the ghosts were at bay until they were dug up. So by the film's logic, it appears you can build a house on top of a cemetery without fear of paranormal reprisal, so long as you leave the bodies where they are. It reminds me of a genre of reality TV, which is very popular in Britain. I guess they have a similar thing in, in America as well, but it's Neighbours from Hell TV shows. Literally our neighbour from hell in this case, isn't it? Basically, somebody gets a TV company in to complain about how their neighbour, you know, won't trim their branches and it's, you know, putting too much shadow on their garden or they're doing construction work, which has made their own life a misery. And they basically set up the neighbours to have arguments with each other. And I feel this is like the most cosmic, dark vision of a neighbours from hell. Uh, story or documentary. If they were making this film now, if they re remade Poltergeist in 2021, they should do it as a sort of docu-horror, found footage horror, and riff on the Neighbours from Hell genre. That's what I would do. Adam, when did you first see Poltergeist? <laughs> All right, so so it's confession time here, Colin. I, uh, I had always believed that I had seen Poltergeist, but it wasn't until I sat down last month to watch it that I realized I'd never actually seen it. Um, as, as a child of the 80s, I knew half of it by heart, just from cultural osmosis. But I had no idea until a month ago how subversive and uncomfortable the film is. The film opens with the national anthem, as if reminding us that the questions of home invasion or possession are sewn into the fabric of this country. And, and then we get this scene of the parents unwinding over a joint as the husband reads a biography of Reagan. Plus, there's this very uncomfortable scene where the mother stands by smilingly and watches as her teenage daughter is sexually harassed by the construction workers who are building their pool. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in this film other than the ghosts. I think there's masses of weird stuff in this film if you just take the time to actually look at it. For example, there's a bit of the film where, I forget who the husband's talking to, but he's talking about his family. And mm -hmm. he mentions that their oldest daughter is 16, but then he mentions that his wife's 32. And you're going, so she had the kid when she was 16? 
Is she, yes, I remember that part. Yeah, is she your daughter? Or did she have a the child of somebody else? Are you like hippie wild children who've now decided to go straight? You know, there's a lot going on there in this, you know. Yeah. I, I first saw the film, right? Yeah. Now I'm thinking the film came out in eighty two. So mm-hmm. it probably came out on home video about eighty three. Like the very early days of VCR. Yeah. So yeah, it's possible right. I saw it about 83 or 84. Because I remember okay. seeing it on video quite soon after it came out. So I saw it when I was about 9 or 10. Mm. <laughs> Can you believe that? My parents let me watch anything when I was a right. kid. I mean, I, wa- I, wa- I remember watching The Omen with my dad when I was about 11. I definitely watched it when I was a kid. I was n- no more than about 10 years old. So I was about the same age as the, the boy. Yeah. The boy in the film, and I would have loved a room like his. He's got an alien poster on his wall, and he's 10 years old. That's odd. It's interesting, though, because the scariest object in that room is obviously the clown, right? Which Mm. is the only conceivably handmade toy in the entire bedroom. So, you know, again, I can't tell the movie is pushing us in a consumerist angle, saying buy... You know, buy the newest toys possible. Don't don't hang out with the heirloom toys. Or in an anti-consumerist angle, as we'll talk later in the podcast about. If the problem is the swimming pool, shouldn't the swimming pool be the site of the haunting? But the right. areas in the house that are most haunted, the, the children's bedroom and the television, are the sort of sites of creativity. To be fair to Spielberg, he doesn't seem to entirely think the ghosts are evil, but a site of wonder and um, yeah. so, something spectacular. And he has to sort of create this idea that. There's the ghosts who have a rightful claim for being pissed off because, you know, their right. graves have been built over. And then this thing called the Beast, which is a bad, nasty, demonic presence, which seems to have found a way into our world to the ghosts who do have a legitimate cause. I'm not entirely sure how the ecology of ghosts work in, in the Freezing House. Um, I guess you just have to go with it a bit. Now, Adam, when we first discussed looking at Poltergeist, I remember us talking about Indian burial grounds. And I remember thinking, this will be very rich metaphorical pickings. While I was doing a bit of research, uh, I I came across a satirical headline from The Onion from 2011, which read, economy failing because US built on ancient Indian burial grounds, which gave me a (laughs) chuckle. Um, I I continued looking into Indian burial grounds. um, And um, it's a a fascinating, I guess, uh, trope, you would call it. Um, Mm -hmm. Native American people you know like any group of people are are far too disparate to make general comments about and you know what's true of their lives is true their deaths and you know you can talk about ancient indian burial grounds because many tribes had different burial rites some mm-hmm. tribes had the i guess you'd call them sky burials where you leave people out to be consumed by creatures that's one way of going back to nature and, and on the other hand, there was some tribes, so I read on the internet, who had burial rites that are closer to ours. They buried the bodies, they had services of some sort. So the notion that there's only one way of burial that can be disturbed with similar results from film to film is just a movie myth. You know, it's a trope. Mm-hmm. And equally, there is in these films, beyond mention of Indian burial grounds, there's no nod at all towards Native American culture. They just drop in this idea and that's enough to sort of make you go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I can I can see that, yeah, ancient Indian burial grounds. Yeah. So there's nothing about Native American culture and there's really no real accounting for historic wrongs either. Although I guess mm-hmm. the, the mere mention of it is enough to trigger in most people a guilty spasm, which explains why narrative-wise, it may, there's a logic to why ghosts would come back if they were on Native American burial grounds. All of this is to say that, in fact, 
but I remembered that they were built in ancient Indian buildings. They're not. They're not in Poltergeist. They're not at all. Uh, in yeah. fact, at one point, Craig T. Nelson's character, the patriarch of the Feeling family, his boss makes a joke about it. And I kind of just felt there was a bit of a sort of uh, whitewashing going on here. I felt that they wanted to have the ancient Indian burial trope, but they didn't want to have to really look into it. And so they have these, I guess, white, affluent, upwardly mobile corpses who come back to haunt people. That, to me, that really has no power at all. It makes me just think they're like dead yuppies trying to reclaim their land. Maybe that's what makes angry ghosts in that way too. You know, they're just, they're, they're angry white former landowners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What they thought was there. I guess the other generation of the parents of the the Freeling family, the the mm-hmm. the mum and dad, and so you yeah. know they're probably looking at these kids smoking dope and not disciplining their own children enough, and having kids at sixteen, and they're they're pretty disgusted about it. <laughs> That's how I see it. <laughs> well, per- they're coming back to raise the kids now. <laughs> yeah, but personally, I I, I kind of I think it's a bit of a fudge, uh, and so I, yeah. I I would like now to read part of a poem by Mary Oliver, called Ghosts, which I think makes manifest the connection between the fate of America's indigenous people and the lack of care contemporary American society has shown towards that history. And it's, it's only an extract, it's not the whole poem, it's quite a long mm. poem. You'll get the feel of it from what I'm about to read. In the book of the earth it is written, nothing can die. In the book of the Sioux it is written, we have gone away into the earth to hide. Nothing will coax them out again but the people dancing. Said the old timers, the tongue is the sweetest meat. Passengers shooting from train windows could hardly miss, they were that many. Afterward, the carcasses stank unbelievably and sang with flies, ribboned with slopes of white fat, black ropes of blood, hill hunks in the prairie heat. Then it goes on to another section. This is the sixth section of the poem Ghosts by Mary Oliver. How the rain falls, soft as the fall of moccasins. How the immense circles still, stubbornly, after a hundred years, mark the grass where the rich droppings from the roaring bulls fell to earth as the herd stood, day after day, moon after moon, in their tribal circle, outweighing the pack of yellow-eyed wolves that are also gone now. Now, Mary Oliver's talking about buffalo, that have been shot but given the fact she's also talking about a Sioux book of the dead it's mm. not too far a stretch I think to see that as being a metaphor for the way that the um, various indigenous tribes of North America were wiped out by settlers and I think that's who she's referring to the, the pack of yellow-eyed wolves that are also gone now gone but yeah. not forgotten or or mm. forgotten by some I guess yeah. um Adam, what do you think? The wolves went the way of the uh, the, the buffalo too. I, I think that you can't talk about the American West or the beginnings of our insatiable consumerism without exploring buffaloes as either an actuality or a metaphor. You know, I have a poem in, in my collection that references those buffalo massacres too. Uh, in this instance, I focus on how their skulls were crushed to make fertilizer for the plains they once inhabited, which again is kind of an even greater irony in that this massacre was used to replenish lands for I guess, the animals that could no longer be there anymore. You think of the ghosts of them that are still around. Could you read that poem, Adam? I remembered it, actually, while I was um, looking at the Mary Oliver poem, and I thought it would make a nice tie-up. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I I, uh, I, I don't know what competition it's going to be for Mary Oliver, but I just, <laughs> <laughs> I can't do my best here. No competition here. We're all friends. 
That's it. That's it. Uh, this is called Extinction Days, 1873. Bison skull, seven standing men tall. Winter, quavering fields of damp wheat. Dull breath of ghosts eases the embers. Again, sleep on the backs of the sleeping. How much room for a pool is there? We own all the land. We've already made arrangements for relocating the cemetery. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, come on. I mean, that's sacrilegious, isn't it? Oh, don't worry about it. After all, it's not ancient tribal burial ground. It's just people. Besides, we've done it before. When? In 76. Right down there. Mr. Verdi? All 300 acres, and let me tell you, it was quite a deal. No, no, but I never heard anything about it, though. Well, it's not the sort of thing one goes around advertising on a billboard or on the side of a bus. What are you worried about? Friends and relatives can visit their loved ones in Broxton Memorial Park. It's only five minutes further, for Christ's sake. Oh, yeah, well, five minutes, you know, that's, that's no great hardship. And I suppose that'd be okay. We've been talking about how the Indian burial grounds and portergeist that we misremembered uh, are, aren't in fact Indian burial grounds. They're just, you know, generic uh, dead white people burial grounds, which is a shame because it means you can't connect up with the very rich tradition of uh, Indian burial ground films like Pet Cemetery, The Shining, The Amityville right. Horror. Mm -hmm. Saw an episode of Buffy once that played on that idea. <laughs> Adam, Adam, do you think, here's a thought, is Portergeist actually a zombie film in which the undead eat a house rather than human flesh? For me, the question in that question is, who's the zombie? You know, if we, thanks to George Romero, associate zombies with anything, it's mindless consumption. So in the case of Poltergeist, I'd say it's the family, and particularly the parents who are the zombies. The ghosts clearly have an agenda, uh, which my favorite line in the film hints at. When the youngest daughter asks why she can't, or when she asks her mother, why she can't feed her goldfish. The mother says, because if you feed them too much, they grow up to become sharks. Now that's exactly where these kids are headed. Thanks to their parents' money disinterest, spoiled apex consumers in the making. If anything, the ghosts are trying to save the kids. Notice they don't go after the teenage daughter. She's too far gone from becoming the future hedge fund managers. Their lifestyle has destined them to be. Poltergeist is something of an anti-consumerist parable. When you consider that the father's journey is from one absent father slash TV addicted real estate impresario to dedicated father whose final act in the film is to remove the television from his family's hotel room. It's worth noting that by US legal definitions, living in a hotel means you're technically homeless. And what greater sin was there in the 80s or even now in American culture than losing or giving up or being forced to abandon your home? This is, I think, where we get our fear of haunted houses, of being consumed by something we should consume, of being possessed by what we should possess. Tying back to my comments earlier uh, about my book, I don't think it's a stretch to say that ghosts are often placeholders for economic power dynamics. What else could we call the invisible and omnipotent hand of the banks but a spectral force? This film and most ghost stories are about control, about ownership, and are about our obsession with ownership. Who has the remote so they can watch the game? Who has control over the house, the current or previous landowners? Who even has control over the film? Was it Hooper or Spielberg? When we speak about ghosts, we're speaking about debts, about histories too uncomfortable to be spoken of plainly. And when we speak about ownership, 
we're looking for certainty where there is none. I think of the arguments about whether it was Raymond Carver or Gordon Lish, who was the true artist, you know, Ezra Pound uh, or, or T.S. Eliot. And if you're looking for certainty where there is none, you might as well be chasing a ghost. But given all this, it's worth remembering that as this poem by the master minimalist Samuel Menashe reminds us, sometimes the ghost we're after is who we once were. This is Here by Samuel Menashe. Ghost I house in this old flat, your outpost, my aftermath. I think you are so right that what's at the bottom of the particular fear that haunted houses engender is you buy this house, you put a lot of investment into it, and you, you don't want to admit something's gone wrong. You don't want to end up homeless. You don't want to end up at the bottom of right. the economic ladder. So you, you, you continue to stay there. And um, it makes me think as well, I shared with you that clip of the Eddie Murphy sketch about horror films and about the difference between white families and uh, black families. And Eddie Murphy can't understand why the white families won't move out, you know. And I th mm. it's a great joke, actually, because what I, I think it, what it's saying is that um, African-Americans are much more sensitized to danger and to mm. listen, listening to their instincts when a dangerous situation comes up, whereas white people are arrogant, think that they can you know, the, the the rules that apply to the everyday life, they can use with ghosts. They can get an exorcist who's basically just, uh, I guess, an enforcer for the, the bank or whatever, you know, getting, pushing people out, pushing the ghosts out. Right. Uh, yeah. Whereas I think that um, African-Americans realize very quickly that the system won't support you, that you, you right. really are on your own and uh, you should take appropriate action. I was watching Poltergeist last month. I got a question. Why don't white people just leave the house when there's a ghost in the house? Y'all stay in the house too fucking long. Get the fuck out of the house. Very simple. It's a ghost in the house. Get the fuck out. And not only did they stay in the motherfucking house and pull the guys, they invited more white people over. Sitting around going, our daughter Carol Ann's on the television set. I would have been gone. If I had a daughter been down the priest and said, look, man, um, I went home and my fucking daughter's in the TV set and shit, so I just fucking left. Um, you can have all that shit. I ain't going to back, back to the motherfucking. Um, I just came down so when she ain't up at school, you th don't think I killed the bitch or nothing like that. But she is inside the TV set. You can have all that shit. Fuck it. Uh, Mr. Murphy, didn't you try to save your daughter? Yeah, I'm a man. I tried to save. I turned the channel. The shit didn't work. I got the fuck out. Leave. The kid was only six years old in the movie. They couldn't have been too attached to her. Leave. In the Amityville Horror, the ghost told them to get out the house. White people stayed in there. Now that's a hint and a half for your ass. A ghost say, get the fuck out. I would just tip the fuck out the door. They walked and looked in the toilet bowl. was blood in the toilet. They said, that's peculiar. I would have been in the house and said, oh, baby, this is beautiful. We got a chandelier hanging up here, kids outside playing. It's a beautiful neighborhood. We ain't got nothing to wear. I really love them. This is really nice. Too bad we can't stay, baby. Now, we've, we've touched on this already. We've, we've kind of spoken a little bit about it, um, Adam, but on the subject of possession and influence, yeah. is it a toe pooper film, Portergeist, that has been possessed by the spirit of Spielberg? It feels like a Spielberg film. I mean, if you've watched toe pooper films, you can sort of see elements of his work too, but it really feels like a Spielberg film. Looking at the kid's bedroom with its Star Wars memorabilia, 
Marvel comics, uh, Marvel action figures, the alien mm-hmm. poster. I was looking at that bedroom and I was thinking, that could be a bedroom today, you know, for, for a man in his 40s. <laughs> a man in his 30s. Not for a 10-year-old kid, but for somebody with a lot of disposable income who's, you know, a man-child. Uh, and I kind of feel maybe, just maybe, our entire culture is now haunted by the preoccupations of, uh, you know, man, man-children, of, of people who were 10. Uh, like, mm-hmm. like that kid, basically. That kid, you know, who has haunted himself. In the same way that they say that victims of abuse themselves can grow up to become abusers. I feel like that kid has now, you know, as a result of Portuguese now sort of inflicted their cultural interests in the whole the whole of our society, you know. And yeah. I, I find it fascinating that Spielberg in the 80s, he had, a, he had a real go at defining the 80s. In the 2010s with Ready Player One, he did it again, trying to say what, what the 80s were all about. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's amazing thinking that he made this and and ET in the same year. But when you look back at how clearly he defined what the '80s were, I mean, I watched Back to the Future again for the first time the other night, um, or not the first time. I watched it with my daughters for the first time the other night, and you know, I've, he's part of that as well. He made culture what it was. But with Ready Player One, I was starting to wonder if he was defining the '80s again, or whether he was cannibalizing the '80s again. You know, there was something dispiriting about seeing this old master revisit his old hits for the purpose of a film, all about the superficial pleasures his fertile imagination gave us. Uh, you know, I couldn't tell if he was trying to close the lid on that particular coffin and say that, you know, kids need to stop playing video games and get out in the world, or just give us a feature-length pop culture, pop culture Ouroboros. Yeah, I, I got about 20 minutes into Ready Player One, and I just turned off. It just seemed very yeah. arid and... I'm not a video gamer, so it's possibly right. not really. I I don't understand them, so it, it was riffing on things that I just look on with um, with confusion. But I mean, yeah. I I'm kind of fascinated by the the older boy character in in Portergeist, if only because you know I'd have been about the same age, you know, when I right. when I saw that film, and yeah. while I was watching Portergeist, I was just looking at this kid and his various troubles and i kind of thought i bet you in 10 years time that kid's in a grunge band he's going to be doing grunge nirvana soundgarden influenced songs about ghosts and demons and everyone's going to be thinking it's a metaphor but in fact he actually he actually experienced it and another yeah. another weird thing about the film did this strike you as odd as well in the sequence towards the end when the, the boy leaves the house he gets in a taxi the dog drives off and nobody says oh he's going to stay with his aunt or he just drives off. They just wave away to him. And nobody at any point in the film says, oh, he's gone to stay with these people. Or like, he just like leaves. Nope. He comes back, but, you know, yeah. it's odd. That, that was the 80s, man. You just threw your kid and a dog in a taxi every chance you got. And, you know, it was it was cheaper than a babysitter, I imagine. You yeah. Know, the, the, yeah. The I'm just, I'm now wondering if, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about him as a grunge, a successful, you know, grunge musician, um, Death Tree has to be one of their greatest hits. That's got to be it. Well, I mean, grunge was kind of death-haunted as well, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe Poltergeist was more responsible for um, for grunge than Kurt Cobain. Who knows? <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. This yeah. is... <laughs> we keep breaking new cultural ground on this podcast, so um, keep it in mind. To, to finish off the main part of the show, I want to do another poem, and I've chosen Whispers of Immortality by T.S. Eliot. Mainly because I like the way it conflates the anxiety of influencer possession uh, with anxiety over death. And it has some great horror film imagery in it as well. 
and I should of course say as well, um, it's not an episode of Poetry Goes to the Movies unless we mention David Lynch or T.S. Eliot. So this is the one of <laughs> we didn't get lit this time, did we? We, we nah. missed out on our Lynch. Oh, I did. I did see White Picket Fences, which should make any decent filmmaker think of Blue Velvet. Yeah, yeah. Any anyone playing the Poetry Goes to the Movie bingo at home, it definitely got that one. Yeah, after. yeah. Moving on to Whispers of Immortality by T.S. Eliot. Webster was much possessed by death and saw the skull beneath the skin and breastless creatures underground leaned backward with a lipless grin. Daffodil bulbs instead of balls stared from the sockets of the eyes. He knew that thought clings round dead limbs, tightening its lusts and luxuries. Dunn, I suppose, was such another who found no substitute for sense to seize and clutch and penetrate. Expert beyond experience, he knew the anguish of the marrow, the ache of the skeleton. No contact possible to flesh allay the fever of the bone. Grishkin is nice, her Russian eyes underlined for emphasis. Uncorseted, her friendly bust gives promise of pneumatic bliss. The couch Brazilian jaguar compels the scampering marmoset with subtle effluence of cat. Grishkin has a maisonette. The sleek Brazilian jaguar does not in its arboreal gloom distill so rank a feline smell as Grishkin in the drawing room. And even abstract entities circambulate her charm. But our lot crawls between dry ribs to keep our metaphysics warm. You know, there's a lot of poltergeist imagery in there as well. And and the sexism as well. Let's not forget. Yeah. <laughs> that, that very first line, the skull beneath the skin, that's, that's poltergeist... Uh... That is poltergeist, actually. That's the scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the horror of it is, you know, losing your yeah. home and just being a, a, a homeless dead person, isn't it? I mean, right. if, you, if you're homeless, you are effectively dead. And then, then throw in a sort of large soups on it of sexism, which T.S. Eliot had there. Sort of disgust of sex. And if you look at that sort of final sequence in Poltergeist, where you have this sort of... Um, I'm just going to go there and say it, Adam. I guess a sort of vaginal entry into the sort of uh, the ghost world with this sort of Lovecraftian tentacle coming out of it as well. I, I guess also, hey, it's like Alien, isn't it? Yeah. V- vagina and dentata, the mouth of the um, the alien, which has penile projection coming out of it as well. It all ties yeah. up, Adam. It all ties up. You know, now that you said it, I can't picture it otherwise. So, <laughs> uh, I agree. Yeah, I mean, there was something definitely uh, umbilical-like well, particularly because it's the mother who goes into the uh, interdimensional portal to get the daughter, and she has the rope tied around her. And so there is a kind of uh, reclaiming of her child that would look almost like the birth process, I imagine. You've got the umbilical cord nature of the way that she uh, enters into the world and escapes from it. You know, they're certainly covered in a kind of uh, otherworldly uh, uh, liquid, I guess you would say. It's, um, it's meant to be ectoplasm, but it looks very much like afterbirth. Elements. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Two men talking about birth after birth elements. Sorry, every single. Sorry, womankind, for that. I do apologize. Yeah. What's the number for the complaint hotline? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put that on. Um, I'll put that at the end of the show. Certainly a fascinating film, and and weirdly one that um, feels kind of timely, doesn't it? Or or as I like to put it, Adam, Polter Zeitgeist. I love it. Okay. And now we've reached that very special moment in the show when you can take a break from me and Adam yakking. 
Our guest star this episode is Joy Priest, who we're delighted to say has taken time to talk to us about what movies mean to her and to her writing. Hi, my name is Joy Priest. Um, yes, that was the name given to me at birth. Uh, I am an American poet, currently a National Endowment for the Arts Fellow and an MD Anderson imprint fellow in the PhD program in literature and creative writing at the University of Houston, uh, where I live in Houston, Texas. I am a black poet and I am a poet from the American South. And these identifiers together are important to the themes of my poetry. I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, and I grew up right across the street from Churchill Downs, um, the horse tra racing track where they run the Kentucky Derby every year. Uh, my debut collection, Relatedly, which was just released this past September, is called Horsepower. Also important to my poetics was probably my two-year tenure as box office maven at the historic Kentucky Theater, which is a local indie art house theater in Lexington, Kentucky, where I, um, th this is the town where I went to college. And this theater has been managed by Fred Mills since the 60s. Um, he's sort of referred to as the mayor uh, the unofficial mayor of Lexington. When I worked there, there were two theaters. Both of them played 35 millimeter films. I think they transitioned to digital shortly after I left because it was becoming so difficult to obtain these film reels. Theaters were just passing them around the country, taking turns. We played like two films a month or so. Most of them would end up being Oscar nominated. I worked there from 2012 to 2013. So some of the films that played were Beasts of the Southern Wild, Moonrise Kingdom, Stoker, which was Park Chan-wook's first English language film, Rust and Bone, uh, a French language film, one of my favorites, The Place Beyond the Pines, and Spring Breakers with James Franco, who actually happens to write poetry, by the way. I guess I think of a film as poetic, like I do in any other genre, if it does something I hadn't thought to do or that you hadn't thought to do, or that you haven't, we haven't seen someone else think to do, or something that hasn't been done before, you know? If it gives you that feeling where you're like, shit, I, I'm so jealous I didn't come up with that. And I think it's poetic, particularly like maybe a specific example, it's like the framing in a film, or a scene in a film versus a poem, which is itself a kind of frame, like a poem is a frame. A poem can be a scene. A poem can build a world visually, you know? So I think there is actually a lot in common. Poems and films have a lot in common, maybe more so than even poetry and fiction or, or any other kind of visual, like, you know, genres that seem to be more closely related, like photography and film. I actually think poetry and film has more common than anything else. I'm going to read a poem after a film that uh, I wrote. Well, I'll talk about my filmic fracas series but i'm gonna read a poem after a particular film that i i really was struck by another poet that's a little bit ahead of me here uh sort of complimented a poem i i i published last year i really appreciated the description uh, um that he used to to talk about my poem and he said that i do this thing with poetry um where I render the recent past with intense attention and beauty often only given to the deep past. And the film that this next film that I'm going to talk about that I wrote this poem after, I think that this is true of this film as well. And I, I was so struck by this film because I watched, 
I watched it at the exact right moment in my life because my life sort of paralleled that of the protagonist. This film is called Mississippi Damned. It was released in 2009. It did really well at the film festivals, but it didn't end up getting distribution. I'm not sure of the particular language, but it had this, it had like a specific filter on it or it was shot maybe with a specific kind of camera that had this effect of historicizing the recent past with really exquisite attention to detail. It took place in the 80s, early 90s um, in the South, in Mississippi. And that just feels like so in conversation with my work on so many levels. My first collection, Horsepower, was definitely uh, set from the late 80s to the early 90s, uh, or a section of it anyway. So in, in, in the American South, it sort of deals with these same themes of the working class American South and escaping and, and so forth. So in Horsepower, like a film, I start out with this prologue poem that's a flashback to the speaker's childhood. And then the title page is next, which would be akin to a title sequence with the film. And then the story just starts in media res with the grown-up speaker in the midst of escaping the working class snares of the American South, um, headed north to New York City. The poem I'm going to read, I wrote after uh, this film that I was talking about, Mississippi Damned. Uh, and I wrote this after I finished Horsepower. So it'll probably be in a future collection. So that seems like maybe a, a, a theme, it's going to be like a thematic interest of mine. So I'll close with that poem. And it's called The Night Never Ended When One of Us Died. The night never ended when one of us died. The dice and smoke kept rolling. The town we lived in already felt like the end. When the phone rung, I was always the one to answer someone asking for directions, but they couldn't hear my small voice over everyone sighing resolutely together about where we'd ended up. From the porch, all you could smell was the waste plant. But when they sent the boy cousin to the corner store for more beer, I ran to it the way we ran to base, followed him there with my eyes, which saw what the grown folks didn't want us to see, which kept inside the self what they could not. My auntie had on gold boots, lumens. She stood beneath the wind chime inside a lightless vacuum, connecting new ports like constellations, the burning fresh to the burning out, the boots being the only reason I noticed her there. When she sat down at the card table, her belly was still a perfect globe, just like the poof on her head, the puff exiting her lips like a life expiring. When uncle's backhand met her cheek for asking, not thinking, where he was headed on his way out the door, she fell from grace like that angel who knew too much, leaving one boot upright on the linoleum, ownerless but luminous nonetheless. Hadn't she learned by her age, you only escape into yet another paradise to fall from. The party continued under the lights that washed the poor country of my parents' kitchen red. So when the blood ran down auntie's legs, we all thought it was her water had broken. It is best not to confide in anyone your own victimhood. When a family's pain falls into a girl, only she can bring it out of her body alone, by death or instrument, embryonic little lyrics squeezed out onto the screen or canvas or page. Thanks once again to Joy Priest and a reminder, her collection Horsepower is published by the University of Pittsburgh Press as part of their Pitt poetry season. All right, Colin, what film are we doing next time? 
Well, we're looking at the three R's, repetition, repetition, repetition. As we look at light verse, drafting and redrafting, and refrains as we spend Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. I'm sorry, what was that again? I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god, I'm not the god, I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck? You folks ready to order? I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender, I am an immortal. Special today is blueberry waffles. 